like to hear the puppeteers play the characters that you cheer. So join us as we go, 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 below the frame. On this episode of Below the Frame, I'm talking to Sesame Street Muppet performer Frankie Cordero. He plays Rudy on Sesame. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We'll also be learning about awkward positions in puppetry, and we'll ask a puppeteer a question about not puppets. Okay, it's time to go below the frame. Sing it! Go, go, go below the frame. Welcome to Below the Frame with me, Matt Vogel. If you like our little podcast, please, please rate and review. That's the phrase I am supposed to say because everyone says that on their own podcast. And I'm sure those of you that have your own podcast, and who doesn't, have one of those these days. You probably say rate and review on your podcast, so I'm saying it too. All right, we got that out of the way. Today, I get to talk with Frankie Cordero. He is a puppeteer on Sesame Street. He does a lot of other shows, including uh, a lot of projects with David Rudman's company, Spiffy Pictures, and we have been trying to do this interview for about a half a year, and I'm not kidding. Every, every time we try to schedule something, the day arrives and one of us has to reschedule for one reason or another, and it has happened, I, I, I'm not kidding you, uh, like five times, six times. And then, then we actually did connect, and we started to do the interview, and there was a huge audio problem, and we couldn't continue. Could something have been conspiring against us? I doubt it. I doubt it. I'm sure it was just you know scheduling and technical issues. But no matter... Because we've got that interview, and you are going to hear it right now. So, guess what? I am ready, so we're going to jump right in. Let's go below the frame with Frankie Cordero. One, two, three, four. Go below the frame. Frankie Cordero, welcome to Below the Frame. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Matt? I am great. I'm doing great, because I think that it's going to work this time. We are actually going to do this interview, despite having rescheduled it many times, actually trying it just the other day, and it completely falling apart. But I think that it's going to work today. I think so. It feels like we've already done so much. I know. It feels like we really have, doesn't it? But but no, we haven't. We <laughs> are yet. going to learn all about you, Frankie, and we are going to start back at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago. I actually grew up between Chicago and Oak Park, Illinois. So... My family lived in a neighborhood called West Humboldt Park, and then we moved to Logan Square. And while we lived there, my sister and I went to a dual-language elementary school called Inter-American Magnet School through sixth grade. I went to the Chicago Waldorf School for one year, and um, at about eighth grade through high school, I lived in Oak Park. What were the kind of things that you did as a kid in Oak Park? Well... Oak Park, so Oak Park, I feel like I equally grew up between those two places. So while we were in Chicago, in, in Logan Square, we moved there, and we lucked out with these amazing uh, next-door neighbors mm-hmm. uh, who kind of immediately became like family. And um, they had uh, a boy who was a few years younger than me uh, named Franklin, and their daughter Lame Lenore was a few years younger than my sister Alina. And so we, you know, we just kind of immediately became like siblings and mm. summers were packed and we did a lot of museum trips, saw a lot of live shows and um, day camps and nature trips. And they were also a very 
creative family. And um, uh, actually what led us to Oak Park was uh, the fact that my, my sister was big into dance when, when she was younger. And I was, you know, into puppets since I was about, you know, for as long as I can remember, maybe we'll three years old or so. Second. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to puppets yeah. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the time, we were, my parents wanted to get us involved in more um, just theater and art programs. And there, there were a ton in Chicago, but our, our neighbor, uh, Susan Lannon, she told us about Oak Park, which is a suburb just right west of Chicago. And um, they had this, this uh, dance and music school called the Academy of uh, Movement and Music. And um, they had these great programs for, you know, young kids through high school and beyond. And um, we checked that out. And Finances were a little tight at the time, but they told us that there were some possible scholarships available. And the director of that school was super generous with giving us, you know, a scholarship. And um, we went there for several years. And my my sister stayed within dance, and I did some theater there. And so Oak Park was kind of like a second home at the time. Um, and my parents worked pretty hard to. Um, to just save money and eventually move there. So by the time I was in eighth grade, we were living there and um, just taking full advantage of their their art programs and mm. um, just ton- they just had tons of. It's a great place for families and for kids and uh, just it's a, it's a very a lot of it's a very artistic community. the The entire community is very involved in general and um, there's. It's it's a great place. There's beautiful architecture around. It's uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's home studio is there. Wow. Um, and uh, Ernest Hemingway went to my high school as well really? as uh, was he in yeah, your class? Yeah, there's tons of. He wasn't in my. He was a few classes behind wow. me or ahead of me rather. Yeah. But um, he <laughs> Ray Kroc went there and uh, dropping oh, is he all the guy these that names makes the now. Crocs, the shoes. He makes the croc shoes and he made the hamburgers oh, at the big, the big right. hamburger the franchise. Marches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, um, fine. Betty White. You know. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. It's uh, it was a pretty creative community there. Very fancy. Uh, what did your, <laughs> what did your parents do for a living? Um, my parents, when they met, they were both working at Illinois Bell, which is now currently AT&T. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, they were both climbing telephone poles and seriously. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My dad did that right out of high school. He was 18 and he started training to install phone lines. And then he also installed phones in, in houses throughout Chicago in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I, I, I remember my mom, my mom then when, when she had my sister and I, she's, she stopped working for a while, but then after that, she was just kind of working as many jobs as possible, just to make ends meet. So she did some some retail. She worked at a children's bookstore, and she um, later ended up finding a job at a, a high school as a ESL uh, English second language uh, Spanish tutor, and she ran the foreign language department there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, my dad in 1989 started working as a clown and magician. Really? So yeah. So he. Had he, had he already s- always had an interest in m- magic and clowning? I don't. Or? I it, it kind of. I mean, I think he was you know always interested in performance here and there in general, but he never really pursued it hmm. um, until my sister's fourth birthday party. Um, they wanted to hire some entertainment, 
and uh, the I guess the clowns were a little expensive in 1989, <laughs> and so he just decided to look up some bits and some acts and some magic tricks and books, and he went to a local magic shop and got some tricks from there, and he purchased this you know wow. super cheap scary looking clown costume and <laughs> all clown costumes are scary to me <laughs> <laughs> most of them this one was particularly scary it was it was like he didn't sh- he, he wanted to keep the beard so there's a lot of make like white makeup caked into the yeah. beard and the big plastic shoes that just fit over your actual shoes yeah. and yeah. <laughs> so funny. he yeah he he performed for my sister's birthday and and he was hooked and he was hooked he <laughs> caught the clown magician bug and so my my yeah my childhood was just full of uh, puppeteers and clowns, tons of clown conventions. And, yeah. Now, you mentioned you yeah. just said puppeteers. Now, why was yeah. your world filled with puppeteers when you were growing up? So it was 1989. I was yeah. around six or seven. And my dad, the way he tells me the story is that he was actually influenced by me, which is funny to hear, <laughs> to get into uh, to clowning. So he he claims that I influenced his sort of decision to get into performing. Um, but I was, yeah, I was just always, uh, entranced by it, I guess. I, I can't, back then I never really knew why exactly. I just, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have early memories of watching the Muppet show first thing in the morning. Yeah. My parents would tell me that, uh, I would get up at, I think it was a six thirty AM or so. Cause it was in syndication and it was yeah. playing in Chicago at 7 AM. So I would catch it before school. Um, and my parents just kept feeding that interest and we would see a lot of live shows in Chicago and did you have your own puppets I did I had I I was always known in my family as you know the the puppet kid and so mm-hmm. I used to get a lot of gifts as puppets and um do you remember would, any of them when you like what what were your favorite ones to get when you were a kid they well at the time I feel like the ones that were more mass produced were like the folk manis ones Mm-hmm. At the time, yeah. and and my mom worked at a children's bookstore, or it was a place called the Children's Bookstore in Chicago, and they had a rack with all of the newest ones there. So that was always exciting visiting her at work and oh, yeah. seeing all of those on display. Um, but I I started building my own at one point. Um, I remember after seeing uh, the Muppet Celebrate Jim Henson mm-hmm. in 1990. There's a little post credits bit at the end where Gonzo tells everyone about. You know, if you'd like to learn more about the Muppets, check out Of Muppets and Men by Christopher Finch. And oh, wow. Check it out at your local library. So my dad took me to a library in Chicago, and we just caught the attention of a librarian there and asked her if she could help us find this book. And uh, she asked if we had heard of the Chicagoland Puppetry Guild. She happened to be a member of the guild, and she happened to be a puppeteer herself. And she gave us all of that information, and we ended up visiting one of their guild meetings on a Sunday. They would hold them, I think at the time it was uh, once a month or twice a month, and they held them in the uh, the back room at Magic Inc., which was uh, one of the oldest magic shops in, this, in the country, actually, oh. um, that was owned by Jay Marshall, who was also a, a puppeteer himself and a magician. Um, and uh, they're just suddenly just discovered this huge community of puppeteers in Chicago that were super supportive along the way. When you, you mentioned uh, Muppets Celebrate Jim Henson, that was after Jim had died, so around mm-hmm. May of 1990, what, and it probably was later that year, like I think it was like a few year, months right? later that year, yeah. So you would have been 
pretty young. I mean, you would have been what? You, you were saying maybe seven or eight? I was eight at the time, So yeah. eight. And mm-hmm. did, were you aware of who Jim Henson was and what he had done and the fact that he had died? And how did that feel? Yeah, I was very aware of who he was. And um, I feel like that was my... That was one of the first losses that I actually felt, actually, because I, I I was lucky to have you know my 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 uh, grandfather was still with us and we were um, you know all of our I hadn't lost any family I hadn't lost any close friends but I, I still specifically remember my mom picking me up from school and um, pulling over for a moment to share the news with me and she was upset about it because she knew how much it meant to me and it meant a lot to her as well so. I definitely, yeah, I definitely remember feeling the, you know, the heaviness of that loss. As an eight-year-old, were you, uh, you, you knew who Jim was, and was there something about him that drew you even more into puppetry? It's funny, because when I think back, I, I f- from what I can remember, I, I felt equally inspired by the behind-the-scenes magic of the Muppets mm-hmm. and the characters. Right. So... You know, still kind of to this day, it's not, you know, these are all my friends that I'm working with, but I, I, I'm still seeing these characters as, as who they are. You know, I'm not. You still, still have love for them. Still, I still have a love for them. I still, yeah. I still can't help but, you know, buy into the illusion of it. Um, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I love, too, that, you know, I was an incredibly shy kid. And um, I, you know, it's not something I took in at the time, but I think I was drawn in by the fact that um, that Jim Henson's energy was so calm. Um, and that was something I related to. I get that. Yeah. Uh, when you, you say you were really shy, incredibly shy. Yeah. With the puppetry, were you able, was that kind of an outlet for you to be a little bit more outgoing, to be a little bit more fearless? Yeah, in hindsight, I think so, yeah. I... Definitely, let, I mean, you know, it was it was the my parents would always say like, oh, he's he's wild at home and it's uh, <laughs> pretty quiet now. But trust me, he's he is so talkative at home. But you know, it, I, I feel like it was it was definitely an outlet. Yeah, it was absolutely an outlet to to let loose a bit. Yeah. So, did you ever think as you were a kid and you were playing with puppets? Did you ever think, oh, this is what I want to do? I want to build puppets. I want to make puppets. I want I want to I want to perform puppets. Were you like locked in and that's what you wanted to do with your life? I knew, I absolutely knew that I wanted to keep doing it. I had no idea what that would mean in the future. Right. I had no idea what, um, what it would mean to be a freelance puppeteer and to, mm-hmm. you know, just try and coordinate all of that. But I, I just knew that I loved doing it. I knew that um, it, was, it was always exciting to perform for an audience. Um, uh, I, I just knew that no matter what, I wanted to keep doing it. I mean, that's partly why I majored in it in college also. I felt like if I was going to go to uh, go to school at all after high school, that it would be for puppetry. Because and so that's, is that, that's what you did? Yeah, I, I went to the University of Connecticut. And, okay. um, partly Apparently also they be, have a big puppetry. They have, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a very well-known place, yeah. I think, right? You've heard of it, yeah, right? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, uh, who was in charge of the program when you were there? It was uh, Bart Rockerburton when who's I was still, there. Who's He's still, still there now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm guessing, and I don't know, so you tell me, mm-hmm. 
I know that they do a very full range of puppetry there. It's not just Muppet-style puppetry. Were you expecting that, or were you aware of other kinds of puppetry when you signed up for UConn? I, I was definitely aware of other styles um, at that point, just through you know a lot of events at the Guild in Chicago, and I, I went to um, a lot of puppet festivals through the Puppeteers of America when I was younger. Hmm. So um, you'd seen different, you'd seen marionettes, you'd seen rod puppets, you'd seen shadow puppets. Yeah, you were aware of all these different styles. Yeah, my my parents were just so great about. Um, just keeping my sister and I busy and mm. taking us to tons of shows in Chicago. And there was a, there was actually a marionette theater um, in Chicago at the time. It was a storefront theater called Animart Puppet Theater. And the, the, the two men that ran it were Bill Henderson and Dave Herzog. Who, and Dave Herzog now has his own independent marionette company in Chicago where he does touring shows. And um, it was a theater that operated there for a while. And they, when I met them at the Guild, uh, David offered for me to come by once in a while on Saturdays. So I went there for quite a few Saturdays just to hang out and be what there for the full you, day. What, what, uh, how old were you at this? I think I was uh, around like eight or nine at the time. Oh, wow. So pretty early so really on. young. Or 10. Yeah, I think around like nine and 10. Um, just to be able to hang out and see, you know, their, like how they build their puppets and just to see how they run their theater in general and just be able to be there for their, you know, they had two day or three day shows. And, um, Dave actually, uh, built, helped me, I say helped, but you know, I was 10. So he <laughs> basically designed and built my first puppet stage, which I used for years when I would do shows around Chicago and my mom sewed the curtains on it. And my, my dad was there helping as well. Um, you know, for sometimes I, I would be his, you know, puppet assistant during his magic shows, but he, he was, um, you know, but 100% in when it came to helping me with my, my shows constantly and literally, you know, drove me across the country if, if it meant getting me some sort of exposure to what I was, in, you know, that's really interested cool. in. Yeah. That's very, that's very supportive. And Dave, you said Dave was helping you. He designed this first puppet for you and helped you build it. And did that really ignite for you? Oh, I, I can build puppets too. I can design them and build them. Yeah, he. They most of the puppets they were building there were marionettes. They had some hand puppets, but but once he built um, that stage for me, I mean, I felt like uh, I had everything that I needed to be able to do shows around Chicago and and uh, just. You know, started, had my little business cards and yeah. <laughs> did uh, birthday parties once in a while here and there and festivals and library events and things like that. I guess well, I did. did you have a name for your puppet company? It was called Just Imagine Puppet Theater. Just Imagine Puppet Theater. Yeah. I haven't said that out loud in quite a while, actually. <laughs> so you, uh, you had your own company and then you're off to college. The, the UConn program definitely... Um, was was the best choice I think between the few schools that had uh, puppetry offered as a as a major, but I also really wanted to be near New York um, yeah. just yeah. in case opportunities came up there. Um, there was a bus on campus that would actually uh, pick students up in front of the campus bookstore, and you would do one transfer in Hartford, Connecticut, and then you could actually get to Penn Station. So it was pretty much just like a like two and a half hours or so. Did you have any connections to New York? How, why did you think, you know, you wanted to be close to New York? I, I wanted to be close to New York, uh, 
you know, in the event that there could be some opportunity that could come up with Sesame Street, for one. Um, I, I did have family there as well and still have family there. My mom grew up in New York. So growing up, we did a lot of New York road trips for Christmas and New Year's. So we would um, visit family there in the Bronx and in Long Island. And so there was that connection. Um, but also there was a, a puppeteer named uh, Glungo King who was oh, yeah. in a group called the Crotations. I've seen them. And um, yeah, really cool amazing puppeteers. Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, and, and, and Glenn also worked on Muppets Take Manhattan. He was one of the, he was in the ensemble, but he was in the core group that was there doubling for other characters and doing a lot of assisting and things. And I met him in 1993 at the, uh, was a National uh, Puppeteers of America festival. And uh, my, I, I got a youth scholarship to go there awarded by actually um, Frank Oz's parents, by Mike and Francis Osnowitz, who were the directors of that festival. And um, I, I remember seeing the Crotations performance, and I had never seen anything like it. You know, they were doing, they, a lot of their musical acts were existing songs that they would lip sync to, but they also had a lot of very loose sort of uh, bantering interludes between the characters. And it was amazing. And he, he actually spotted me and struck up a conversation and ever since then to this day also uh was constantly in touch and constantly supportive and sending me any any clippings from newspapers that had to do with puppetry over the years um hmm. such an amazing guy like so full of energy and his and we always knew when his mail would come in because his mail also looked incredibly <laughs> energetic big bold letters and highlighter outlines on it and i always knew that it was going to be this packet of you know amazing info and just that's so cool he was just constantly supportive and um yeah yeah just uh, a mentor from afar from so many years so you met glenn and did that result in anything you know your connection to new york other than you know being sent these amazing packages did you ever have to go to new york for any any reason i so wh while i was at uconn actually i uh, I got a call from Glenn. It was during my senior year, and I um, he told me that he had a show that he was offered um, to puppeteer in that was playing at La Mama ETC in the East Village, mm -hmm. and he wasn't able to do it because of his teaching schedule, and he asked if I'd be able to. And um, at this point, it would be the first semester of my senior year. So I wasn't completely sure if I could do it. It was like a three month commitment, but I ended up working it out with my teachers and, you know, all of my general education teachers and, and, and Bart was hundred percent in with letting me do it. And I was able to get, you know, a few college credits for it, but, um, it was a puppet character that I played at this, uh, in the show at La Mama. And yeah, it was basically, I just, it, it, it was an amazing experience because I got to live in New York for three months straight for the first time, you know, live in New York for the first time. Oh, oh so you didn't, you didn't commute? I didn't commute. Yeah, it would have been tough. It was, uh, they were full on rehearsals Monday to Friday. Um, and then, oh. you know, full tech and leading into the run of the show. So I had to, I had to miss like two to three months of, of school. So they, um, there were people coming in from all over the country actually to do it. Because uh, the show originated from University of Iowa. And so there are some people coming in from Iowa, some were local in New York, and some people were coming in from L.A. And 
they housed us in all different parts of the city. So I was staying up at um, near 88th and Central Park West in a for about three months while rehearsing for the show, and then and then got back into school after that. But uh, yeah, he he, I'm, you know, realizing he gave me my first New York theater opportunity. That's yeah. pretty cool. Was there anybody else in New York that would have been a connection for you? Yeah, I I met David Rudman actually when I was in high school. So so even back a few years you had Yeah, met David. I met him when And did you know who he was? I knew who he was I mean, and in, I and I had seen I had seen his name in credits and I knew, you know, I knew about the characters he played, but I actually had no idea that he lived in Illinois. I didn't know that. And he and how did that come about then that you met him? It came about because my dad was my dad just happened to be in a very specific place at the right time. Uh he yeah. was in he was at a clown convention that was a deep suburb somewhere in Illinois and for part of the the clown conference or convention they had uh, a store or a shop where a lot of the vendors would sell used magic tricks or new magic tricks. Some sold puppets. And uh, there was one table he came across and there was a guy selling oil paintings of clowns and, and offered clown portraits as well. And it was David. <laughs> and it was Rudman. David. I had no idea that he did oil painting. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that. Of clowns. So that's how we met. <laughs> so my dad got into a conversation with this guy, Eric, who's the artist and, Oh, and oh, uh, <laughs> and puppetry came up in the conversation, and Eric mentioned that he went to high school with David Rudman, and that he had a company called Spiffy Pictures with, or I think it was Rudling at the time actually, um, with mm-hmm. his brother Adam in Highland Park, which was forty minutes north of where we lived, and so they exchanged info, and my dad spoke to David, and uh, I ended up visiting their Spiffy office at the time when I was seventeen or so, so I. Yeah, so my dad dropped me off, and I just went up there with a suitcase of my puppets to show David and just chat a little bit. And um, it was like, you know, my a lot of my characters were, or a lot of the puppets anyway, the build of the puppets were very much Sesame Street inspired, um, yeah. which, I mean, for good reason. Obviously, I was influenced by them, but, yeah, but he, uh, he definitely influenced me to sort of explore and and try out some of my own designs and try and find my own style. So once, you know, every time I had a college break or if there was time, I would visit and check in with them and and um, just hugely supportive. We ended up working together actually right before I graduated in 2003 on mm-hmm. uh, the first, actually the first, I guess, official video project that I had done outside of making my own stuff in my house. It was uh, with yeah. Spiffy for... Is a series called Curious Buddies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I did something. Oh, did you did you do Buddies. music for it? Or we did not music, but we did. Uh, Joey Mazzarino and I shot. Uh, if it wasn't one, it may have been uh-huh. two little videos, and I can't using my kids, and I feel like oh. it was about like taking a nap uh-huh. or something or nap. Oh, time. nice. Something like that, and it was just a little. This is when you guys were doing uh, when you had your company, right? With with Joey. Yeah, yeah. Pratt Fall okay. Productions. And David just said, hey, do you want to do this video? We yeah, Murder, He Squeaked was uh, played around the my, my floor in the dorm room at UConn a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. We loved wow, it. Wow, that's yeah. cool. 
<laughs> yeah, I love doing that. Uh, but no, 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 about no. Me. Let's, let's so, keep going. <laughs> did you see yourself as a puppet builder? Did David see you as this? Did he, or see you as a performer as well? I, I think I always felt that I was a performer primarily. I don't know. Growing up, I was kind of doing each equally because I was building my own puppets. I had right. I would sometimes buy puppets, but I had I had. Um, Another mentor when I was super young named Bill Eubank, and he would, like, just short of being angry at times, would tell me that I needed to <laughs> build my own stuff and stop buying stuff. So, so if I would oh. see him once in a while, I mean, in, in a very uh, generous, gracious way, but he would, you know, he would get worked up, and he's like, "What do you? Why do you keep buying this stuff?" He's like, "You could be building this stuff your own." And so he you, knew he, you could do yeah, it. Yeah, and he was super generous back then, sense. and I remember him giving me a basic pattern that I was able to kind of manipulate into different shapes and things. And that kind of started me off. But so I always, I was always building my own stuff, but I was um, definitely, I think, trying to work toward performing. We'll be back with Frankie Cordero in a few minutes, but first. <sighs> Sorry about this. It always happens right about now. Come in. Hey dad, are you available on the lawn now? I thought you were going to mow the lawn. Yeah, but I don't really want to. So I thought you might. No, I don't want to mow the lawn. All right, but it really needs to be mowed. Jack. All right, I'll do it. So what's your fake ad about today? Uh, awkward positions. Fascinating. Really, Jack? Yeah, it's really interesting. Oh, thanks. Um, the lawn. Oh, if you want to do it, fine by me. No, 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 no. No, you go mow the lawn. How about you do it and I'll pay you? Jack, I already paid you to do it. I know. I thought you could cut out the middle, man. Jack. Uh, look, it's December. Anyway, we don't need to mow the lawn. Just, 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 just go. Just go. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor. Attention. If you or a fellow puppeteer have been put in awkward positions while puppeteering, you may be doing it right. Awkward positions are a common occurrence in the world of television puppetry. You may be uncomfortable, but that puppet should look good no matter how stretched or squeezed you are. Perhaps your puppet is sitting on an iconic brownstone stoop. Guess who'll be underneath it? That's right, a puppeteer in an awkward position. I'm laying on my back in the dark, but my puppet looks terrific. Thanks, awkward positions. Or maybe you're right-handing and have to be super close to another performer while on a rolling dolly. You may find yourself in an awkward position. I'm racing to keep up with the lead puppeteer, but at least my prop was handed off in time. Thanks, awkward positions. Maybe you're in a big group scene. Can't see a monitor? You may be in for an awkward position. I have to bend forward and look through the legs of another performer just to see the monitor, but at least the shot looks good. Thanks, awkward positions. Finding yourself in the back end of a shaggy two-person elephant-like puppet? Get ready for the ultimate awkward position. Unhook. Okay, newbie, lift so they can unhook the back. Make sure your feet don't slip in the shoes. You just cinch the harness straps tight. You don't want to be flopping around back there. Now, the back end of snuff is no picnic, but it's essential. You're going to want to take a wide stance and lean back so there's no swag in his middle. You got to step with the opposite foot that I do, and you will never know which foot I'm starting with, okay? I hope you're warmed up because this shot calls for a long run. Mr. Robinson, this is an honor, but 
Can we, can we please slow down? No. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Thanks, awkward positions. For related information on awkward positions, please call 1-888-AWKWARDPOSITIONS. That's 1-888-295-927-367-484-667. Awkward positions. No matter how uncomfortable, make those puppets look good. That's right. Today's episode of Below the Frame is brought to you by Awkward Positions. And it's pretty straightforward. We're usually in an awkward position. I mean, really, there's nothing more to say about it. The ad really did speak for itself. So I'd like to thank Awkward Positions for being a sponsor of Below the Frame. Now back to the show. We're back with Frankie Cordero. And so you said you, you graduated in 2003? Uh, in 2004. Two, yeah. 2004, but you did a Curious Buddies in 2003. Yeah. And you have a really, you have a long list of items on your resume working with Spiffy Pictures. Yeah. And you did Jack's Big Music mm-hmm. Show, two seasons of that. That was in 2006. You did uh, Baby Bongo Bird. Uh, you did the <laughs> Schwartzman Quartet, who I love. Yeah. The Schwartzman Quartet. Was that your first big, long stretch of working on a show? Yeah, Cur- Curious Buddies was, uh, yeah, I'd say for like a, a show for broadcast for sure. Because Curious Buddies, we ended up doing, I think, seven or eight uh, DVDs at the time. It was a DVD series. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that was the summer between junior and senior year in high school. So I was working with Spiffy Pictures during the day on that. And our puppet wranglers were um a part of or they were the head of Histopolis Productions we were working on a show called The Adding Machine at a theater in in Chicago at night so those days were just full wow. of it was the best summer job ever and i actually had trouble you know wrapping my mind around the fact that i had to go back to school after that i remember the oh. adding machine got extended and i just wanted to stay i was like there's no way i can go back to school this is exactly what i want to be doing right yeah. now um but yeah jack's big music show was the first um, show where I had just the opportunity to be there day to day and have a long run. So I was playing a lot of, you know, assisting because there's a lot of instrument playing on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one of the Schwarzman Quartet. Um, then a few one-off characters here and there. And then on certain days, you know, there were some strips or some uh, scripts that were a little more stripped down. And so there was always something to do. So on some days I was playing the door. Like I was literally <laughs> for maybe... <laughs> You know, 30, 40% of the time on the show, I was the clubhouse door. So I would would sit on the Apple box and have my hand on the door, (laughs) and it would open for whatever puppet guest came in or whatever celebrity guest would come in through the door and then shut it. And that was sometimes my my sole job for the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and that kind of, if you're, if you don't know this about television puppetry or maybe puppetry Mm -hmm. in general, the puppets really can't grab the doorknob and open yeah. it and walk yeah. through it. So somebody <laughs> has to yeah. do that. It's an important. It was job. yeah. There was a timing. Yeah, involved. there was there was some pretty intense timing involved sometimes, especially for the human guests too. Um, mm-hmm. And even if these puppets could look like they're opening the door, I feel like it just shaved off a good five to ten seconds to not ha- to just have it magically <laughs> yeah, open and have them come have in. to touch. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Working on Spiffy. Productions is so much fun. Yeah. I've talked about this before that David and Adam, they have such a great way about them, both on and off set, yeah. that makes everybody on the crew feel comfortable. And I love that that 
he has storyboards for his yeah. shows, so you know how he knows ahead of time how it's going to be cut together. He only uses one mm-hmm. camera. Uh, can you give me some observations of working on a spiffy show versus maybe working on some other shows you've worked on? Well, I feel like yeah, I feel like spiffy. Even thinking back now, aside from when I worked on, you know, maybe some music videos over the years or short sketches, it it was, and still is the only single camera show where there is that. Mm-hmm. Um, that detailed of a vision. Um, and yeah, he's, you know, we're, we're still all these shows right now. We're doing 80 episodes of, of Don Quixote. We're almost done actually, which is mm-hmm. crazy to think, but, but every single one is, is storyboarded and we pretty much, when the full episodes are done, they pretty much remain that way too, exactly as they were planned out. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hugely beneficial. It makes the editing so much easier. Mm-hmm. It also, you shoot what you need yeah. and you don't overshoot. Right. How many pages do you shoot in a day? Uh, we do, it, it shifts a little bit here and there depending on the episode, but we, we always try to give two and a half days for for each episode, for each 11-minute episode. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, we've still been trying to find the balance of pages versus the time that comes out, but the, the scripts are... Yeah. Between 14, 16 pages that come out to 11 minutes. Sometimes we have to find ways to trim them down a bit afterwards. But um, And then Fridays are all of our green screen shots um, mm-hmm. or special effects shots. So it's, you know, sometimes we'll get one done in a day and a half or in two days, but usually about two and a half days per episode. Yeah. So I should mention Don Quixote. If you haven't seen it, it's a co-production between Spiffy and Fred Rogers Productions. And Frankie, you play... Purple Panda, mm-hmm. among other characters. But Purple Panda was a character on Mr. Rogers' yeah. Neighborhood, yep. correct, originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically a dude in a Purple <laughs> Panda costume yeah. and very robotic sounding. That's and, exactly how I uh, describe him usually. Right? Yeah, it's a dude and I mean, it, it's... <laughs> That's what it is. It's, it's so weird. It looks very weird. And your Purple Panda is a, a, just a beautiful puppet, yeah. first of all. Yeah. And really big, like it doesn't have. It looks like it's really. He's really stiff, yeah. but I think it's 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 you like you use it. You use that as part of the character. It looks like to me. Yeah, he's. Uh, he yeah, he's one piece. I mean, he has some neck movement. He can look up and down. Mm-hmm. He can tilt a little bit, but but not too much. He can't do too much tilting, and he definitely doesn't have. Uh, like if he wants to look behind himself, I, I have to have him sort of like pivot slowly on one leg and do like a lot of take. It might take like, you know, three or four seconds to, to turn around. Um, <laughs> Almost like a real person in a purple. Panda yeah. Costume. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I just, but the character has changed, has changed for, for Don Quixote. Can you tell me about that process of making him into a more, uh, more of a character, I would say. Yeah. The, so like you said, the original one was, it was more of a walk around sort of mascot outfit and, uh, he spoke in this sort of tone and that's what I had in mind when I was first reading for him. But, uh, you know, David told me that I was welcome to just try anything that I wanted for that. It still ended up shifting quite a bit cause we started shooting these in, uh, November of, 2019 so it's been almost two years now um we had those longer breaks because of the shutdown but um we're about to wrap up 80 episodes um but yeah they you know they're really great about letting us use the script as a guide and you know there's a simple character bio but i i had um you know complete freedom to 
play around with what I wanted and um, just, you know, just freedom every day to keep letting it evolve. They were okay with it evolving and, you know, finding, finding a place for it. Do you do a lot of ad-libbing? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we, you know, there is sometimes the, you know, the curriculum needs to stay intact, but, but they, but yeah, they're totally open with letting us ad-lib here and there. Yeah. It's, it's nice having that, that sort of flexibility for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What is your relationship with David? David, it's funny because I, I've had several, uh, people that I think of as mentors in my life. It's David, but David, his sort of mentorships have been a little more indirect and it's felt a bit more natural in hindsight when I look back on it. The entire time he's been the type to just let me try, you know, when I first started working there, when I was like 21, I think, uh, there's just a lot of letting me try things and never really stepping in and directly giving any sort of direction, um, Mm -hmm. even if something took so many takes i'm talking like i remember during curious buddies there was a shot where i had to have this bear uh float across the full span of the screen in a wide shot in a sailboat but the sailboat was two-dimensional if you were to rotate it just a tiny bit you would see the back of it just a little bit right and so i had to hold that still while holding this bear and having him sort of be alive so it's kind of like the (laughs) c-stand for the boat and having the bear look around yeah. as we drifted by and oh hello oh, oh somebody just showed up <laughs> hi hi i <laughs> ryan dylan what's going on oh nothing How's it going? <laughs> I, I just wanted to come in and quickly i know you're having an interview but i just want to i i i feel like i don't know how to say this frankie owes me 546 dollars <laughs> and 63 cents and he's owed oh. it to me for the past three years Oh no! He's been saying he's good for it. I am good for but, it, but you're gonna have to remind yeah, right. me of the so, breakdown. I, I'm not okay. So number one, I'm not sure that I can say why he owes me this money on online. <laughs> number one, number two, I just felt, uh, and I'm a nice person, right? Like I'm look, a nice, look, good you're person. a nice guy. And usually, when you say you're a nice person, that really means you're a nice person. If you say it, absolutely, yeah, making sure people know, yeah. But I really yeah. need this. It's I really need it. So I'm hoping we can get some like outreach, some awareness with all the below the frame okay. listeners. Maybe we start a GoFundMe page. I yeah. might be able yeah. to move some stuff around, but you're never getting it. You're never getting it. Now we can talk collateral, Frankie. You have any like oh. Snoopy books or anything I can have? I do in the meantime, have a lot can... of Snoopy books, actually. <laughs> My parents' basement. Tons of Snoopy stuff. You need to go over to your parents' basement because it's not great over here. I need that money. I'm sorry to do this. I should have started with a one a warm warm welcome I message. I know. I, I'm just a little bit on fire right now, and I apologize. I hear. I understand it. I if he owed me. Is it? Do you hear it in my voice? Is it? Is it? Was it five forty six? Five hundred and forty seven dollars and sixty three cent. It grows. It grows by the dollar as the minutes go. Well, well there's interest. interest. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. There's interest. So there's yeah. this thing called interest, Frankie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Frankie. And, I, and we're all interested in what this 500 and whatever dollars which is I can't about. say. I can't tell you why. You and I, God, I want to say can, why. I mean, since we're here yeah. right now, we could talk about it, and Matt could snip this out. My concern 
<laughs> is that it affects your life directly, right? Like we oh, all got to work, goodness. right? We all have, we have to work. Yeah. I can't, I don't yeah, want to, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want that on my head. I understand. Having said that, I think Frankie's <laughs> a terrific person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what Can do you, we talk about this real quick? We're, we were talking about Frankie's life, obviously, and he is part of the Idiot Club as a yes, character named Frankie. Yes. Well, yes. Previously, sometimes he's Frankie, yeah. and sometimes he's Raphael because we couldn't. <laughs> because, it gets confusing. Yeah, yeah, we have a character called Frank the Horse, and we thought, oh, oh you know, in our in our market testing, we found that people were confused by Frank and Frankie. Hey, Frankie the so Horse. Now, <laughs> Frankie the Horse. I love Frankie the Horse. Actually, my uncle did tell me that so the other day. So he's Raphael some yeah. days when we remember to call him Raphael, and then he's Frankie oh. when we forget. That's my middle name also. That's how Raphael came up. I yeah. was wondering <laughs> where it came from. Frankie, where uh, are you? Are well, you at home? No, I'm in, I'm at WTTW. Your window to Your the world? Your window to the world, Channel 11, in their sound booth here. You know, he had to go and tell people in the hall to be yeah. quiet. Well, I've seen him do that before. <laughs> and it's, it's like pretty, a right? hot, it's like a white heat. It's really scary <laughs> when he comes. I had never seen him. I, I didn't see him. I heard yeah. him. Sounded Please so mad. Please snip that out of this interview. See, at Sesame Street, he keeps it really level. <laughs> really he doesn't. Nice. He's so calm and, and professional and lovely at Sesame Street the minute he's out that door. <laughs> See? I can and tell. He, but he's able to, he, most people can't tell. That's the best part. See, Matt, you <laughs> right. know him well enough that you can see it now. I can see it, yeah. Really well, good. We I to... envy people who can hide it. And he can hide <laughs> yeah, it really I well. I do too. I, I, I have, for as long, I've known Frankie for like, I've known Frankie since the late 60s, but I have no <laughs> stories about him. I know nothing about him. Like, I, I have, I couldn't, for the life of me, come up with a story, and there are two stories that are hilarious, both of which I can't tell. Oh, can't tell. So, <laughs> I am just here to support Frankie. I'm really hoping I can get that cash. It would be better if it was cash. I can make that, Yo, I, the, I can make that happen by, uh, I'll see you next week. Is that all right? See, Look. That concerns Can me. We f- I, okay, I will give you until next week. I've given you the option of collateral with some Snoopy books or anything else that you may f- deem worthy of my, uh, something that might interest me. You will be gifted a Snoopy book next week. That's a That's start. That's worth $500? It may now, be. A, it may book. be. These were, um, these were from the 50s. Right. Look, don't you have Venmo? I don't have Venmo. I, I don't know what, what? that means. That's right. You keep all of your money in a mattress. <laughs> Why would you say that? Now everybody knows that. All of the tough things people know that. Muppet Central knows that. Everybody knows I have money in my mattress. Yeah, if I'm they sorry. find my address, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> well, everybody knows you live in Orlando. I do live in Orlando. Sunny Lake Orlando. Buena Vista. <laughs> so look them up, folks. Yep. All right, Frankie, when are you coming next week? I'll be there Wednesday. I will see you Wednesday. I will see you. And... I you could if a money order is easier, that's fine. <laughs> I'll be literally attached to you for a good part of the day. You're with, assisting me. Yeah. No, yeah. you're doing Rudy. Yeah. Well, Rudy will be there too, but I, I think I'm there holding your hands for a bit too. Which will make it extremely uncomfortable if I don't get that cash. That Snoopy that, book. That cash. Have you ever had to assist somebody and you owed the money? That's awkward. <laughs> it is awkward. That'll be a new segment on uh, Below the Frame. <laughs> I mean, we all have a story where we were oh, right-handing sure. for somebody. and That we owed money to. That we owed money to. And then what do you do? You can't be like. And then the more you say, like, was that take good? Like, you question everything. It was good, you say, but, you know, $548 <laughs> was 
would feel. Was it five hundred forty-eight dollars? Gotta tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you picked up a uh, pencil. Ryan, okay, <laughs> Ryan. Thank you so much for dropping by. <laughs> Gonna and, go uh, have fun, Frankie. I will see you next I'll week. See you then. <laughs> Snoopy book in hand. And Matt, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> I know we will. Bye, Ryan. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ryan Dillon. <laughs> I thought there he goes. He's gone. I. Uh, well, I didn't know he was going to try to get money yeah, from Yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I've got until I, I Wednesday, know. I, I think. Know. Yeah, you got some yeah. time. You got time. Yeah, I've also uh, I've got some Ryan stories, but I, I feel like uh probably shouldn't no, say. No, no, yeah. I think most of ours Yeah, we should snip those out if we do talk about them. <laughs> so how do you know, uh, we talked just a little bit about the Idiot yeah. Club, and we'll come back to David and, and, and a bunch of other stuff yeah, here, yeah. but Ryan, how do you know Ryan? Ryan and I met actually on the World Wide Web years ago. Um, we both, really? so I was in high school, and there was some sort of, it was a Muppet, you know, Muppet sort of community online, uh, fan community, and uh, knew him originally as a screen name at first, and um, we kept in touch. We ended up working together here and there. When I when uh actually he I think he moved to New York in two thousand nine, and I was set to go on tour, and he was looking for a place to live, so he was subletting my place for a bit. But then from there on out and throughout, we were working on a ton of our own projects together and working on a lot of. Um, there was, there were some, you know, sketch comedy videos that we did with puppets and we ended up being on a lot of the same projects and, um, built a lot of puppets together. Um, and yeah, we've just been close friends throughout, but yeah, we only knew each other online for quite a while. I think we met, yeah, yeah. We met brief, we met in person finally at, uh, I think it was at the, at the pub at the O'Neill conference. I forget which year that was, but it was his first year there. And I was coming by to see the shows, and we finally met face-to-face. Were you now doing some Sesame stuff? Didn't you do, like, a Macy's parade way back in... I had done... Oh, yeah, we met on the parade... Actually, I think we the first time we met was on the, the parade float. We later saw each other. A couple years went by, and we saw each other at the O'Neill. But, my yeah, my first thing at Sesame was the Macy's parade in 2000. And then... I mean, that was way back. When you were... Were you in high school? I was a freshman in college. Yeah, I was a freshman in college. college And I had... I had been sending in videotapes once in a while of of my puppet stuff to the... I don't even know if I sent it to an address for Henson that, you know, that anyone would have actually seen it. (laughs) Um, I'm sure they did. (laughs) Maybe. But but I, I ended up getting a call one morning at like... It was like... 7 a.m. or something, which felt early for a college student, for an 18-year-old. So, oh, yeah. so I, I, my <laughs> dorm phone was ringing at 7, and I was thinking, like, this can't be good news because, like, who's going to call my dorm? None of my right. friends would be calling my dorm at 7 a.m. Um, and so I pick it up, and uh, it's Kevin Clash. And uh, typically called very <laughs> does he? early in the morning. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I pick up the phone. And he's like, "Hey, Frank, it's Kevin Clash." Uh, he's like, "We're doing the Macy's parade. Just want to know if you want to be a part of that. Come on, puppeteer, baby bear." And uh, I was, first of all, I was exhausted, and I picked up the phone and shocked for a moment. And also, I was eighteen, so yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking <laughs> in the long run to serve. I mean. In some ways, I was like, yeah, I'd love to be at Sesame Street, but I had just booked a ticket to go home for Thanksgiving. 
but uh, also offered this amazing opportunity. And he's like, would you like to be on the Macy's yep. parade? And my first answer was my immediate answer was just, Oh, I actually just bought uh, tickets to go home. So I'm going to be in, um, I'm going to have Thanksgiving with my family. And there was a pause there and he's like, all right, well, uh, we'll give you a call for something else sometime. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> thanks so much. Um, have a good one hung up. And my, my roommate who's on the top bunk who usually would sleep through to like midday when he didn't have a class <laughs> wakes up for a moment and just goes, did you just turn down uh, your first job offer from Sesame street? And I just froze and I'm like, I th- yeah, I did. And he's like, you should call him back right now. <laughs> so he's like, you can change your flight. You know, I just wasn't thinking. So I called him and I was like, Hey, I'm sorry. I'd, I'd love to be there. And, and so I ended up, uh, doing the parade and playing uh, or puppeteering Baby Bear for the song. And mm-hmm. I remember, I think this might have been one of the last years they did it, but it was a cassette tape that came in the mail with the song, <laughs> like right before they switched the CDs. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and listened to that Sad, on a right. loop constantly. Just mm-hmm. so excited to be able to, you know, hear those characters and know that I would be there performing with them. And, and like, you know, amazing opportunity as a, as, you know, a, right there in college to be able to also have one of those puppets to, to play with for a couple hours and just mess around on the float. Yeah. 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 And do you remember, what do you remember about that appearance in particular, the actual parade? I mean, the whole, th- it was completely surreal experience. A lot of it was so much of a blur. I, I remember I was sharing a, a window with, with Lars, with Lar- um, and um, we were chatting for a long time. And mm-hmm. kind of immediately, you know, felt like we became close friends. We have the same birthday too, which we discovered that day. Oh. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was just incredible. It was it was a, it was a strange but incredible experience for my first experience uh, with Sesame Street to be in this this small space, huddled. Not that we're always not that we're not always in small spaces, but, but right. to be in this, this right. box basically like floating above the ground, rolling across New York city, <laughs> um, with all these iconic characters and just being able to chat with everyone in a more relaxed schedule like that. It was amazing. It's really a fun experience to get to be on the Macy's Thanksgiving yeah. parade. And you got, you, you did baby bear. Yeah, I did baby bear. So one of, one of David's yeah. characters. Yeah. I st- and yeah. he, uh, I think I, I still remember him joking, which uh, it went over my head at the time. <laughs> but he was like, I, I, he was like, oh, so who are you playing for the parade? I'm like, Baby Bear. And he's like, oh, well, uh, you know, just be careful with it. Just make sure you wash your hands, you know, before and after using them. And I kind of froze yeah. for a moment. I, mean, <laughs> I was like, oh, God. He's like, yeah. I'm kidding. Gotta be careful. Have a good time. Yeah, yeah, that's really yeah. cool. Uh, I want to go back just for a minute to Don Quixote before we we move on through here. Uh, you are also directing on yeah. Don Quixote, but that's not your first outing as a director. Uh, no, did, it's uh, it's definitely my first um, for a TV series for sure. Um, I directed a lot of my own my own projects and uh, some you know just a lot of shorter form stuff over the years, but it, it was all for uh, internet content so i had done some mm-hmm. short internet ads and a music video 
um, and um, just short bits mostly. But yeah, it's, it was the first opportunity I got to do a series. What's your approach to directing single camera? Because a lot of your experience has been on Sesame where it's three cameras and just that, that world. You've certainly worked a lot with Spiffy doing their single camera stuff, but what was it like now for you to have to take the reins uh, and figure this out? What, how'd you do it? I, well, when they first offered it, I wasn't exactly sure how I would approach it. I had done one other project. I, I didn't really storyboard my stuff as much before, aside from a, a music video I did back in 2008. Um, it was for this band called Tally Hall who was with uh, Atlantic Records at the time, and they had gotten just a little bit of a, a budget to be able to make a string of music videos, and they, they found my name online and reached out, I think through my personal website, I think. And they reached out, and they said, oh, we love all the stuff that you directed, and, and we'd love for you to direct this music video for Atlantic Records and for our band. And at the time, there was nothing online of mine that I had directed before. <laughs> So I was, you know, I was just like, oh, thank you so much. I'd love to do that. And yes, thank you for your compliments on my work that's yet to happen. <laughs> so, but, but it was a great experience. And I, I storyboarded that one. Um, but a lot of the other things that I had done uh, moving forward, they were mostly just my own projects. So I would just kind of like fly with it and do it as I went. Um, but for the... Spiffy stuff. I mean, for a while, I had I had seen the storyboards that David had been creating for you know throughout Jack's Big Music Show. Those were all storyboarded. I never necessarily studied them for that purpose, but I think just being around them and just kind of soaking that up kind of naturally happened. I had no idea how I would approach it. I think I just the first episode that I did several months ago. I was just kind of feeling it out as I went and. It was kind of nice because it was a way to reconnect with. I used to do tons of drawings of comic book or comic strips when I was a kid, and I, I just used to sketch a lot. And I kind of let go of that for a long time as I got older, and it was a nice way to kind of reconnect with that again. Um, but yeah, it was suddenly then just um, just trying it out. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if there was any um, process necessarily. I, I just. Um, but you yeah, storyboarded. I storyboarded it, and I kind of in the same way that David. Yeah, they asked me at first if I would like to storyboard, if or if I would just like to break it down and create a shot list. And I wasn't sure at first. I thought maybe it would be mm-hmm. quicker to to just get straight to the shot list. But I'm definitely a much more visual person, so um, I, I just I decided to storyboard and um, just felt it did, out. Did you show them to David ahead of time and say, here's what I'm thinking? Were you able to... Were, did he make any suggestions on set? Like, hey, uh, maybe we want to get it closer. Yeah, that, I mean, that happens w- once in a while, but th- with this first one, um, they were amazing, and David was great with just uh, kind of letting me do it. The The first episode I did, um, I just submitted the storyboard within the, the usual timeline that they need episodes before having the production meetings, and um, he was... You know, just trusted me, which was amazing, and just walked away. And uh, it was an episode that his characters, well, he was in. He was in this this episode actually. Um, but whenever Bob Dog wasn't on, he would just kind of take off. And he had a ton of other episodes to storyboard yeah. <laughs> too. So Always busy. Uh, so he's busy with stuff. But um, but yeah, it, they they were pretty amazing with just letting me uh, try it out. And so I've done several of them now, and I think there's one more before 
we wrap up in December. Um, but it's how do you like it? How do you like directing? I love it. I love it. It's you know, in some ways, I feel even though I I technically directed my own stuff, I guess, since I was a kid, just making little videos and things. But it's it still feels new, and if I I guess I I never thought because I was so focused on puppets and I knew that that was my love growing up. I never necessarily thought that this much later in life that I'd find something new that would energize me like this. So it, it was, it's great. Like I felt like, uh, I just felt like it was this new love, you know, that I hadn't quite discovered yeah. yet until I was actually in it. And I, yeah, yeah, it's been fun. Well, I think there's a different kind of pressure when you're directing your own stuff or creating your own stuff. Mm -hmm. And the, then when you're like, okay, here you yeah. go. Here's all these cameras and yeah. lights and all these people. And yeah, and here's your time and, limits. And, and this you, is yeah. not your and money. The producers yeah. over there. Yeah, it's not your money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it's a different pressure, but you seem like the kind of person that can handle that kind of pressure to me. Thanks. I, I, yeah, I, I felt like, like most things since I've been a little kid, even with performing, I, I, I remember being a kid and, you know, doing my first show for a pretty large crowd and feeling the jitters before that. And I always feel that before going on, like here and there mm -hmm. still to this day, but it's always the lead up really, you know, once I'm there and I'm in it, it's, it feels great, you know, and it, and it immediately yeah. felt, um, it just felt like, uh, something I had wanted to be doing for years, whether I knew it or not. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What do you see as advantages of being a performer who is also a director? I feel like I, that's another thing I, I, I just more recently started to think about is that, I mean, it absolutely helps to be in there in the moment and direct. I, I, at first I thought I'd feel a little overwhelmed by the, by puppeteering and a story where Panda might be a little more featured and directing, but I feel like, like all of us, we're kind of self-directing as puppeteers anyway. We've got this, the, we're actually watching the frame in real time. We know exactly uh, where we want to move or where to counter to make room for another character. Um, but I, I think it was definitely an advantage to do um, a good amount of episodes before jumping in because the characters were so solid in my mind and, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't plan it out like this necessarily, but I found myself going through the script and doing all the voices and acting it out and just feeling it out that way. And that kind of helped with the whole storyboarding process too. It's awesome that you're able to do two things on this show on, on Don Quixote. You're able to direct, you're able to perform. Yeah, they've been, and they, and, and they were great too. I'll, I'll eventually be doing some, some writing for the show and I've built several of the puppets that there's some background characters and some recurring characters that I've built too. So there's super cool opportunity too to, to be able to build some puppets okay. for the show. And so it's, so you're still building, you're still, building yeah, here and there I, I built, men. um, yeah, a handful of the characters that, that have been here and there on the show. There's a, there's a, a possum character and there's a couple of mice, a couple of rod puppet mice and a fish and uh super porcupine who's a uh, panda's, hero comic book hero <laughs> uh -huh. who he meets in person at one point so oh. uh my wife maria and i built uh little stuffed animals of super porcupine and later he ended up appearing uh, as himself on the show so i built that puppet also okay 
stepping away from my talk with Frankie Cordero to ask a puppeteer about not puppets. Ask a puppeteer about not puppets. On today's Ask a Puppeteer About Not Puppets, we've got a question for Warwick Brownlow Pike. Warwick. Yes, Matt. If you had to listen to Mm -hmm. one album every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ooh. Only one album. I love music, but I love music so much. Um, It it can't be a mixtape. It's got to be one album. I think it would be Here You Come Again by Dolly Parton. How come? They're just, each song is great. They're all great songs. But then, oh. What's oh, on it? <laughs> Name some of the songs that are on it. Here You Come Again, right, the title the track. Yeah, yeah. Her hit. Um, me and Little Andy, about a poor orphan boy with his dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, God's Coloring Book. Okay. They're all great tracks. Yeah. But um, if, so that would be it. Because I saw that, you, you. Well, you, that's up there. There's also a Sam Smith album and probably one of the Adele albums. You can only choose <laughs> one. <laughs> also, okay, oh, never mind. Okay, what, fine. What are you going to say? Say it. Well, I could take, I could take 100 albums. I know. Gladys Knight albums, Dinah Ross albums. Of course. But see, I, you can, get... I like everything. Well, that's good, though. It's good to have that. Uh, mm. But you're going with Dolly Parton. That's what you got to do. I think I would, yeah. Because right. you got to think, like, what wouldn't you get bored of? Yeah, of course. Hearing it every day. Yeah. I never get bored of Here You Come Again. In this uh, imaginary. Here you come again. <laughs> Don't sing anymore. We'll have to pay for it. No. <laughs> I can do 30 seconds. Ask the puppeteer about not puppets. We're back with Frankie Cordero. I'm now going to ask you, can you tell me how you got, how you got to Sesame Street? Hmm. What was your first day on Sesame Street like? I, well, I visited... Uh, for the first time when I was a uh, junior in high school, actually. And my dad, uh, I was actually, it was, a, it was a trip where I was also auditioning for UConn. So I did an in-person audition. And uh, my dad drove me from Chicago to uh, Connecticut. And we stopped at New York along the way. And uh, David had arranged a visit. And you put our names on the list there to be able to, to just see them filming for a little while. And it was a day where there was actually, it was actually only Snuffy and Big Bird that were there. None of the other characters were there. But, and actually you were in the bird that day. Um, oh. This was, I just remember it was, a, it was a sort of bare bones crew that day. And they had uh, Snuffy and Big Bird on a sort of auditorium stage. And you guys were doing some, some bits and... Uh, I vaguely, yeah. like almost like a little uh, Abbott. Yeah, it's, it was definitely some sort of vaudeville or, sort of vibe going on. I yeah, remember yeah. some straw hats and canes and things. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so it was kind of nice that it was uh, a bit more of a relaxed atmosphere there. I felt like we were able to sit back and watch for a while. Um, and um, we later went to uh, audition at UConn and then... I ended up working. I'm trying to remember my actual first day on set, though. Yeah, when when did you start working on Sesame Street? I well, between two, I feel like between 2000 and when I ended up joining on in season 47, I would come in once in a while to do right hands. So that was uh, yeah. 16. I think that's like a 16 year span. There, I would do uh, right hands once in a while here and there, and I would. Uh, they would keep in touch, and once in a while I would do 
um, photo shoots with uh, John mm-hmm. Barrett at the carriage house. Whenever they had, yeah. you know, they would armature the, the, the puppets and pose them, but whenever they had a walk-around character that was shipped in from an international production or if it was for Big Bird or for any of the other walk-arounds, um, for a while they were super generous to call me in and I would, I would be the walk-around And you person. would do that? You would get in yeah. and walk-around? Whether it was Big Bird or Yeah, yeah. There was, uh, I think That's the first cool. time... They were they were looking for someone who was a similar build as their Chinese puppeteer for Big Bird because they needed to make some adjustments mm-hmm. on the pants, and so so <laughs> I, I came in to the shop. I think it was in Manhattan at that point at the Henson shop, and I was like suddenly realizing I'm standing there in the middle of the shop wearing Big Bird pants, and they're making adjustments and putting <laughs> pins in and doing measurements. Just super yeah. surreal experience. Lots of surreal <laughs> experience. It still happens. Yeah, surreal yeah. It somehow keeps like this amazingly we topping this. itself. It yeah. Um, yeah, but the first day I think was, uh, the first day on the set was when six months after September 11th, I think it was around when it aired anyway, I think it was a week or two after September 11th, we did the, we are family foundation music video where all of the mm-hmm. children's show characters were in this video together. Yeah. And, um, I got a call to come in for that and I was at UConn at the time. And I think it was a last minute call. So I, I, I ended up taking a bus. It was, it was, it was whatever the latest bus was. I went out of Yukon, arrived in New York city at 3 AM at Penn station. And, uh, I think the call time was seven thirty or eight or something. So I just, uh, I just stayed up. I was, you know, it was a mixture of nerves and excitement, but, um, also, it just wasn't worth going anywhere and, you know, not sleeping for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I remember going in and I, I think it was Baby Bear that I was puppeteering again. And it was it was cool because, you know, I went from having this amazing experience just watching Big Bird and Snuffy uh, during our visit. And then suddenly all of the characters were there and we were all squeezed into this little space together. And I think the characters from from bear and between the lions were there as well. And, uh, just puppeteered, you know, we all sang the song. I remember we all sang and they threw everyone's voices on the track and puppeteered it for a bit. And then I headed back to, to Yukon after that, but that was, yeah, that was the first time I was actually on the set. And then as a, as, as a, a puppeteer, puppeteer yeah, working. yeah. Officially working. And then we would jump forward to season 47. You said, is that when Rudy came? Around? Yeah, I came in a, a few times in 46. Um, uh-huh. right after I was, I think I was, I went on tour a little after that and I ended up, I went on tour, um, with this show walking with dinosaurs and I had done the show a couple times at that point and I had just done a full year and, um, I was just really wanting to, I just felt this pull to get back into doing TV puppetry and I, I, had, I had been doing my own projects even on the road. And with other friends on tour and um i put in my notice uh right before there was like a three-month gap before they'd be hitting australia and new zealand on the tour um and i put in my notice and i you know i didn't know if there'd be anything available necessarily but i just wanted to be able to be there in new york in case anything came up and um season 47 was yeah that was when rudy came in but i did a little bit before that yeah so Rudy is Abby's stepbrother. You play that character. How did that come about? So at that point, I had done a few days of uh, assisting on season 46. 
And then between seasons, I remember getting an email about this new character they were introducing for Abby's stepbrother, who was a three and a half year old monster. And uh, they wanted a voice sample. And I think at the time, and at the time I remember I absolutely wanted to take the opportunity, but I also, I think at the time I hadn't played any characters that were younger yet at that point. And I had, you know, I just come off doing a lot of theater and a, a lot of uh, shows, you know, geared toward adult audiences. And I, I wasn't completely confident about maybe pitching my voice up and sounding younger. And, and so I almost didn't, I thought it would be ridiculous to turn it down, but part of me thought like, maybe I shouldn't submit because this is going to sound ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and I, but um, I ended up doing some voice samples and um, got a call back and, and went to the Sesame Workshop offices when they, and uh, you were there um, mm-hmm. at the, at the callback as well. And, and just tried doing some, um, some scenes with Leslie as Rudy. Um, I think we sang a little bit. And I, th- I think it was a, l- a while after that, I was at a Starbucks. <laughs> and I got a call from Matt Vogel, yeah. right? Uh, picked it up. And uh, I think you, you thanked me for auditioning. And we're just, you know, it sounded like you're breaking this, uh, this news to me, <laughs> breaking yeah. some heavy news to me. Right, <laughs> and it yeah. flipped around, and you told me that I got cast, and I and I and I think I only didn't yell out because it was a crowded Starbucks, and I could have, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, you're such a loud person, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> as we've established. Yes, as you all know now. But yeah, I was incredibly excited, and I think I walked home that day <laughs> just because I I. I I was it was uh I was just so overwhelmed with the excitement that I couldn't think about, you know, standing on a subway or sitting on a subway and waiting to get home. So right. I just had to <laughs> uh, I I was I was down at like Union Square or something and I walked home to Washington Heights at 189th Street because oh I was just gosh. like I don't know, I just wow. felt like um, you know, there was so much to think about in that moment and yeah. it was just so exciting. Um and they I think his his first first episodes were all within the first two weeks, so it was kind of jumping in right away with that. What is it like to have your own character on Sesame Street? A, char- a character that you basically have created. You know, a lot of us are, are kind of second, third generation performers of characters that were long established. Yeah, you well, are playing a character that really you get to make into your own. I, I mean, I, I never would have expected that the opportunity would even come up, so it's... Yeah. I mean, constantly grateful for that. Um, and, and, and the more that time goes on, um, I'm realizing that, you know, I, I have been trying to make it more my own. It was easy at the beginning to feel the pressure and feel a little overwhelmed with getting the, the, the episodes out there right away, you know, and, and there was, you know, there was some time to let it grow, but it was really just a couple of weeks. I think his, his episodes were like, there were three of them the first week and four the next week. Mm-hmm. Just kind of got them out there quickly, and then I had a little more time to reflect about it and saw it air. And just, uh, I think he's evolved a little bit as I have, and he's he's three and a half, which is uh, my daughter's current age right now. So it's kind of funny, um, you know. There's some, before before we had kids, I 
I I always saw him as a you know an eager little kid. I think on paper he was described to alternate between shy and outgoing, um, which I very much relate to. You know, in yeah. my in, when I was younger. And the first episode, he's when he's first introduced, he's he's been kind of hiding and nervous to come out and meet Abby. And I, you know, I kind of mirrored my first day. I wasn't hiding, but I was definitely feeling, <laughs> you know, feeling the lead up and in, in the way that you know it, it was it was shot at the end of the day, just as he appeared at the end of the episode. It just felt like an amazing experience having that mirror real life um, in that way. But you know, he's a an eager little kid who. Um, you know, he wants to be a part of everything that's happening and he's super excited to be, but he's also gets extremely frustrated when he can't do those things because he's three. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and, and it's funny. I mean, that's, that's exactly where my daughter is now. And, and even as time goes on, she's starting to sound a little bit like him <laughs> because <laughs> she sounds like a little me and, you know, he's, he's me with my voice pitched up. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of my daughter these days saying like, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that's been yeah. funny seeing that kind of cross paths lately. Um, when you're, you know, when I, when I first read the character bio, I felt like I had to stick strictly to that. And I felt like some of the suggestions for the, do- the vocal direction were things that I had to adhere to completely, but naturally it, it shifts a little bit as time goes on. And, um, yeah. you know, it's just something I try and remind myself of whenever I, play a new character and I just feel lucky the last few shows I've had, these are brand new characters that weren't established before. And, and, and it's, it, it has to come from myself. I think that's the only way it ends up working in the end. You're absolutely right, Frankie. I think that the more experienced you become as well, the more license, hopefully one gives themselves Mm -hmm. to experiment, to be a little bit more bold, to take chances. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I feel lucky that I've been given the opportunity to have, you know, that amount of seasons to keep growing. Cause you know, you watch things back and you th- think about how you'd like to uh, tackle it next time. And honestly, when I first yeah. did, when I did that first season of uh, Sesame Street with Rudy, I hadn't really done a live or a uh, three cameras live switching show. I had assisted, but never really been. Uh, a lead character on that sort of thing. I had done some shows where they, they had a couple like on, you know, on Julie's green room, they had a couple cameras going for, for coverage, but we weren't doing live switching um, mm-hmm. in the same way. So that, that was a new challenge on top of creating the character. But um, overall, you know, it's just amazing to have the opportunity to keep, you know, allowing it to grow a bit here and there. Uh, you, you mentioned Julie's Green Room. You shot that out in Long Island, is that right? Yeah. With Julie Andrews mm-hmm. and the Jim Henson Company. And I know Joey Mazzarino was kind of the, the, the director of all those episodes. Yeah, yeah, he directed all of them, yeah. yeah. And what was that like to do that show? Uh, that, was, that was amazing. I mean, it was, it was a tough schedule. You know, we, we, and it was 18 episodes, I think, all together. Um, I had just gotten back from tour uh, after about a year. And so, um, you know, it was, it was, I was looking forward to some time to be, uh, with Maria, my, who's now my wife. Um, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, it got to a point with the schedule where it didn't really make sense for us to commute anymore because we started doing some later nights and early mornings. And 
Um, so I think for the first week we were trying to commute and it was just Ugh. feeling a bit brutal <laughs> going yeah. from like Washington Heights down to the east side midtown and catching a van and going to, to Long Island and, and back again. And like, I mean, it was, it was, it was tons of fun, but, um, I think it just made more sense for us to stay there. So we ended up staying there, uh, Monday to Friday, but again, just an amazing experience to be able to create a brand new character, um, and with this one, it was one that I felt like I couldn't help but base on myself a bit more because he, he like literally looks like me when I was in, he's 10, but it, it, he, he looks a lot like I did when I was in high school. We had the exact mm-hmm. same, I mean, the skin tone's the same. Yeah. We had the same Afro. Like I had a uh-huh. huge Afro in my <laughs> junior year of high school. Um, like same, like fate exact. I have a split screen of it somewhere on Instagram, but it's the same like face to Afro ratio and everything. <laughs> and, um, and he was also a little, it wasn't necessarily on paper, like on paper, he was, you know, he was described as a kid who was huge into writing and, and rhyming and wordplay. And, um, but I, I felt like I wanted to make him a little bit more of an introvert, which was, um, which I didn't see as much myself growing up uh, with characters on or children's characters anyway. So, and you know, Joey and, and, and Julie Andrews and, and everyone were also great with just letting us play around and explore. And it was nice. We had 18 episodes to, to figure these characters out too. And they were totally open with us playing and tons of amazing guest stars that came in to, to sort of uh, teach the, the kids on the show about their expertise and um, we had, you know, like David Hyde Pierce came in to teach. He was like sort of the rehearsal director and, you know, did the dramaturgy for the show. And Bill Irwin taught clowning. Um, and uh, one thing that kind of came full circle to me is that I remember one of the first shows I saw outside of children's theater. That was um, a show that would, you know, a show that was on Broadway and started doing a tour with Stomp when we went to see mm-hmm. Stomp when I was in, I think it was seventh grade or so. And I remember that was the first show we saw or first show that I saw that I had seen advertised in other places. And uh, we went for music class. And then later when we did Julie's Green Room, Stomp was a guest as well. So it was just kind of cool. to. And Spike yeah. also was hugely influenced by seeing this live music. And it, it just kind of felt like it came full circle again, which was super cool. You brought up the look of the character mm-hmm. from Julie's Green Room. Yeah. And that it looked like you. Skin tone looked like mm-hmm. you. The hair looked like you. Yeah. So you're a person of color, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A puppeteer of color. Right. POC. Um, but the great thing about being a puppeteer is you can play anything. Yeah. You know, from a, a whale to a, a, a bookmark. Right. You, know, you can play anything. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what color you are or what your heritage is. So um, do you have any particular feelings about playing a character that has a background that's similar to yours and maybe looks similar to you? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I, you know, I I may have not realized this at the time when I was getting into puppetry and, and, and acting when I was in high school, but I think what did draw me to it is that I would have the opportunity to to play characters that were not like myself or other than myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, early on, I found that it didn't necessarily feel like that was the case. I mean, I would I would I would be able to do that with my own shows, but mm-hmm. I realized uh, as I continued to do more theater and I started auditioning for stuff in New York that a lot of times 
you know, you would be, as a person of color, sought out for particular roles, which makes sense. But at times only for those roles, mm. which, you know, it was, I have to say it was definitely, you know, I was conflicted about it because I, I loved what I was doing. There's no question I wanted to be doing puppetry. Right. There's no question that I wanted to take all the opportunities to audition as I could. And I didn't want to let any of that stuff slip by. But at the same time, you know, there'd be some auditions I would go to and there'd be the opportunity for us when signing in at the desk to check off the characters that we'd like to read for. And I was like, oh, I'd love to read for all the male characters. And they're like, actually, we're just going to have you read for this one right here. I was like, oh, all right. Well, you know. Um, and, uh, that you know, that happened a few times. And, and there was one time where it made very literal sense and it was completely understandable. There's a shit on Ubi, which... I think we were there yeah. on one of the same days, too. It was in yeah. 2003. They were looking for someone to play Keiko's father, Noel McNeil's yep. father, on the right. show. And um, it got around that he and I had very similar skin tones. And it made sense because these puppets were literally our hands. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so that's a bit of a different situation. But, you know, it was, it was still it was within that time where I was just discovering that um, it's, it just felt like, at the time anyway, that was only being considered for these and kind of, you know, just held back a bit from exploring too much. Did you find that. that it was in the acting world or that was, it was in both worlds. It was I found in- it in both worlds, honestly. And like, I, you know, my background, I'm, my parents are from a few different places and I, you know, for a bit when, when, when puppetry work was a little slow, I would submit to do uh background, um, uh, acting in, in shows or, you know, extras in, in New York. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, I think that was when it was a bit more solidified that I fell under the ambiguous category because I could play various different backgrounds. I mean, my mom's from right. Puerto Rico originally. Uh, my dad, his parents are Puerto Rican and Mexican, but also uh, have some Spain in their, in their history too. Um, so I've played a lot of different backgrounds. And so that was, I, I feel like that was always on my mind that, that there was a, a category that you would fall into. So I found that with acting. I, I was, even in high school at times, um, they had an amazing theater program there, but there weren't as many people of color that were in the productions. And so sometimes, you know, I was I was the, the kid who was in theater and of an ethnic background, and I would be invited to audition for these things that I didn't necessarily plan on auditioning for, but I'm, again, glad that I did. But on the other hand, I feel like... You know, the importance of that representation has been in me for a very long time, whether I fully realize it or not. My my mom, uh, she moved from New York to Chicago in uh, 1969, actually in November of 69. Um, and she was flipping through PBS at one point, and uh, this actually came up again several months ago. And she, uh, she was telling me that she came across Sesame Street when it was brand new. And she, she saw Sonia Manzano playing Maria on the show. And, uh, you know, my mom, she grew up on a, a farm in Puerto Rico. And she moved to New York when she was about three. And she grew up in Spanish Harlem there throughout her childhood. And when she was a teenager, you know, there were most of the depictions of Puerto Ricans on TV were negative for the most part. And she just right. felt like, 
she just felt like uh, she hadn't seen any positive, you know, depictions. And and she started crying when she saw this this woman, this young woman on on television with a you know on a regular basis with this recurring role. And she just kind of broke down in tears, and she just felt that if she could feel this way at 19 years old, that, you know, she could only imagine what little girls felt, you know, seeing themselves in a positive light um, every day of the week and felt that and hoped that these girls would be overjoyed to see themselves this way or that it would just be normal for them, that it would just normalize it moving forward. And it hit her even harder when she had my sister and I, because then her son and daughter could now have two people between you know, Sonia and then Emilio Delgado on the show to be able to see two people within their culture on television that they could actually look up to. So, yeah, I, um, I in no way, you know, I in no way think that the the producers who are casting these shows, you know, meant any harm whatsoever. Obviously, they're trying to cast a show and they're trying to diversify right. the program. But I, I, you know, I was definitely still conflicted along the way it was it was uh it was definitely challenging but on the other hand i i i guess i've been feeling more lately that the representation has been so important because i have i have you know once in a while there's some kids of uh latin descent that um that have reached out who are aspiring puppeteers you know and they'll just like write me a message on instagram and mention that they saw me featured in this you know article that focused on my heritage and um, they, you know, they were looking to me for advice on what to do to become a puppeteer and um, any tips on practice and things. And I, I guess I, I just feel grateful that there is that opportunity there to inspire any kids that might've, you know, it, it's, it's heartbreaking to think that they might've had any sort of hesitation to get into this field because they didn't see anyone else represented. Right. Well, that's true. I mean, but, when, when I was growing up, it was a, a bunch of white guys, mm-hmm. you know, it, that's what it was. And that, that was what I, I wanted to be. I saw myself in them. And it wasn't until, you know, Noel McNeil came along and mm-hmm. Kevin Clash came along yeah, and yeah. Carmen Osbach came along that they really were kind of in at this time where people that were young at that time are now adults yeah. and they can see themselves in those characters yeah. and they can see themselves in those performers. Yeah. And, and it looks like, Oh, it's possible for me mm-hmm. to, to do that. Yeah. And I think you are now in that position where you are inspiring youth uh, and having that same effect on them and, and, and opening their eyes to, they can do this. And by representing what you represent. And yes, we all come to this, all puppeteers, I think, come to this profession thinking, I don't have to be mm-hmm. what I look like. I right. can just be a giant yellow bird or a green frog or a, or a fly, right. whatever right. it is. And it is important who we are below the frame. Right. It, it, it shouldn't matter, mm-hmm. I guess, that that's part of it. It shouldn't matter sure. who we are, and we should be able to play all these other things. Sure. But at the same time, because of who we are below the frame, mm-hmm. it really matters because right. it does inspire those who are like us, uh, whether it's we're the same color or we identify in some way with somebody that we see uh, 
operating those puppets. Absolutely. And, and, and again, yeah. these are things that I feel like hit me much later in life. But I, I also, I mean, I wanted to be a part of this world um, because I was drawn in by the characters. But yeah. I, there's no doubt that I, um, that I felt even more inspired the first time I saw Kevin appear as himself on a talk show when he was on you know, Arsenio with Clifford and when first seeing the introduction of, of uh, Rosita too, I mean, it's, it's uh, a lot of it comes to the surface now, but it was, it was absolutely part of what drove me. Well, thanks for talking about that because you know, it is, it's, it's hard for me. I don't know how to approach these conversations. Mm-hmm. I think they're really important to have, Yeah. Um, but I appreciate you just kind of going there for a minute and, and oh yeah, absolutely interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's good to look back on it. You know, it, what was, yeah. what was, in, what felt like a frustrating time in the past trying to get, just trying to do it for the love of it. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it seems to, to make a lot more sense now. And I'm just, I'm happy that I've put myself out there in certain instances to talk about my background. If it, you know, if it helps influence kids to, yeah. to get involved in what they, they love doing, you know, there should be no yeah. reason that they're held back for that. That's right. Okay, Frankie, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I, I am. Yes, I'll do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. What's the hardest part about being a puppeteer? I don't. You know, I've, uh, I'd say <laughs> this is not so rapid. <laughs> Honestly, uh, yeah. staying physically balanced. I'm uh, throughout the years becoming lopsided. <laughs> yeah. And my right Same shoulder one. is creeping up <laughs> to my right ear. And I'm just yeah. trying to, like, I'm trying to be better about finding ways to balance that out. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. What's yeah. the easiest part about being a puppeteer? That there's no question that, that I want to do that every day. And that I get to, that I'm hired to do something that's super fun that I've wanted to do all my life and that I get to do it with friends on a very regular basis. What's your biggest strength as a performer? I, I feel, I feel like more lately I, I, I feel like I've been able to just bring my, my, whether it's my own self or bringing some sort of truth to the characters that I play, just pulling from, just pulling from real experiences and real emotions to, to bring through to the characters. What is your biggest weakness as a performer? My biggest weakness is, I think, perfectionism, but yep. not, <laughs> well, perfect, I'll, I feel like I'll always be a perfectionist, but being, my weakness is being a perfectionist in uh, particularly you know, during particular time constraints, finding out when to be a perfectionist. Okay. <laughs> What's one of your favorite things about being a Muppet performer? I being a Muppet performer. I mean, just hearing you ask that question <laughs> uh, is yeah. pretty incredible to me. I've wanted to do it all my life, and I get to I get to go into a job that I love constantly and have and share that with people who had the same dream is pretty amazing. Yeah. If you weren't a puppeteer, what would be your career? I, this is my classic answer when I was a kid as well. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's still, 
or a classic kid answer, but I feel like it still holds. Um, I, I would have want, I think I would have wanted to work with animals in some, some capacity. Uh, I, I would say veterinarian when I was a kid, I feel like I'd still say that. I, I just feel like we grew up with a lot of animals and, and I, and I feel like as an, as a, as a pet owner now too, and it seems tough to be able to find good care sometimes for pets. And and I, and I'd I'd want to be able to be the person to do that. So Jerry Nelson once said to me, Sesame street is great, but, but always have something that is your own that you create. Mm -hmm. So Frankie Cordero, what is that for you? Well, you know, actually when I first met David, that was something he said to me as well. Um, Mm. And I think it was because I was so overly excited about, wanting to be a part of Sesame Street. It was like, well, it's great, but, you know, <laughs> just in case that and doesn't pan proven. out. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, he's, cer- he's certainly proven that for himself, too. Right, right. That he's yeah. got his own thing. Yeah, you know? and in hindsight, maybe, you know, I'm standing there in the spiffy office saying, I want to work somewhere else. He's like, well, <laughs> easy. that's great, but, you know, we got something going we got, on here, we too. Got this right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh yeah, I feel like my the things that I would consider my own are like more recently they've been on a bit more of a hiatus. Um, there are a couple of things um, in New York. One of my one of my uh, dearest friends that I I went to UConn with, Ken Berman. Uh, we have still have we're just on sort of a hiatus, but we ha- we had a company together. Um, we would do live theater shows under uh, Dramaton Theater. It was called. It was a lot of the nonverbal puppet shows, some of them. We did some, some with dialogue later on. Uh, we did several live shows, and we'd work building puppets for clients and then um, building our own for our shows and produce videos. Um, and um, we, and also I had a character. I feel like this, this was more of like my own thing for, for a good amount of time. Is I had this character called Corduroy Cat that lives on social media, taking a little bit of a break from it now, but he started on Vine and Instagram. And this was something that I was able to actually carry around with me. Uh, it was a smaller puppet. The character was basically just like any other social media personality or influencer on, on Vine and that it would create its own videos, whether it be like some little short sketch or something. And these are six second videos. So sometimes trying to create a story within six seconds that looped and worked in a loop. Um, and there, you know, on, on that app as well, there's such a creative community there. There are a lot of people that got together because of their love of, uh, filmmaking and creativity. And it was, a, it was an app that was meant to be all in camera editing. So we were all kind of on the same, um, wavelength with that. And the character, you know, we interact with people on this app and I ended up meeting a lot of them in person when I went on tour, kind of turned it into my own tour. And we, mm-hmm. these were people that kind of became close friends just through interacting um, online. And we later met in person and created videos in person and hung out. And it was just, it was just kind of cool to have uh, this thing that I could pull out once in a while, make a quick video um, and have people, people naturally treated it like it was another person. So it yeah. was like this living, it just felt like he actually lived in reality and interacted with people and later people would actually see them together, which was kind of cool. Um, yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Maybe Corduroy Cat will make a comeback during your downtime, whenever that might be <laughs> back. Yeah. 
Frankie, thank you so much for talking to me. It was awesome to finally yes. get to do this interview. We did it. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for having me, too. That's it. That's Below the Frame. We will be back next week with a brand new episode where we'll be speaking with the lovely Debbie Spinney. You can get updates and stuff about Below the Frame and Muppets and Sesame Street and anything I want to post on my Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok accounts at Welcome Matt V, or just search my name. Below the Frame is produced by me, Matt Vogel. The theme song was written by Stephanie DeBruzzo and performed by the Mighty Weaklings, my band. The podcast artwork was created by Dave Holtine at DaveHoltineDesign.com. The word from our sponsor today for Awkward Positions. It was written by Austin Costello and performed by Tyler Bunch, Spencer Lott, and Martin P. Robinson. Thanks for being a part of that one, everybody. Thanks to Frankie Cordero, Ryan Dillon, Warwick Brownlow-Pike, and as always, my son, Jack, for being a part of this episode. And thanks to you, the fans, for listening. I'm Matt Vogel. We'll see you next time when we go Below the Frame. Bye! Go, 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 go.